Hello, and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and nuance behind the headlines. I'm Marianne Azevedo. This is our Wednesday show where we niche down to a single person, think about their work, and unpack the rest. Today, we're talking to David Velez, the co-founder and CEO of NewBank, a Sao Paulo, Brazil-based digital bank that offers credit cards, checking accounts, and life insurance to consumers. It has a market cap of $35 billion currently. I'm excited to talk with you, David. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Marianne, for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you on the show. Newbank has been a topic of discussion lately on our equity podcast, as we've all been impressed with your ability to achieve and maintain profitability in this challenging macro environment. So today we're going to talk about a variety of things. We'll talk about some of Newbank's recent milestones, how the LATAM fintech market differs from that of the U.S., the state of digital banks in general, and how you see banking evolving in the next few years from the lens of both a founder and previous investor. So I know you co-founded New Bank in 2013 and helped take the company public in 2021. But what many people may not realize is that prior to founding New Bank, you were a partner at Sequoia Capital, leading that firm's LATAM investments. So I believe that might give you a unique lens as a founder. Yeah, that's right. I always wanted to be an entrepreneur, come from an entrepreneurial family, but it took me a while to figure out how to get there. And partly of the road to get there was becoming an investor, first in growth equity, then in venture capital. Being from Colombia and from and having lived in Brazil, always wanted to go back to Latin America and do this in the region. And while I was with Sequoia in 2012, after spending maybe two years looking at earlier stage investing in the region, we came a bit to a disappointing conclusion, which was at that time, there weren't that many startups to really back in the region. And, and I decided that that was my time to really go on my own and start something. So that's when I moved from the investing side to the entrepreneur side. And yeah, and it's been great. It's been a great journey. Yeah, obviously that, that turned out well for you. For example, just in May, Newbank reported your most recent financial results and you reported a record profit of say 141.8 million and quarterly revenue of 1.6 billion, which I believe was a nearly 90% increase over the same period as last year. That's quite impressive. So what we want to know is how, how did you manage to do this in such a tough macroeconomic environment? Yeah, sure. So I would say it's a continuation of the roadmap and the business that we've been building for almost for, for a decade, really. We began with the view that Brazil, Mexico, and Colombia, the countries that we operate, and really this is a general view for most emerging markets, there was an opportunity to bring more competition to the existing banking oligopoly. What you've seen after several decades of, of banks in emerging market was that there was a lot of M&A, banks grew through a lot of acquisitions, and that led to a significant concentration of these banking markets where you saw now 80 to 90% of the entire market of savings, investment, credit, insurance being concentrated in the hands of five to six banks. And every time you see an oligopoly, you see lack of access on one end. So a lot of people being left out. And also the people that are being left in paying high prices and support customer experience. So our hypothesis 10 years ago was we would build a full digital bank and use the digital channels to compete with this banking oligopoly, take advantage of the efficiency of the business model, not having to have branches, to pass that efficiency to the end customer via no fees, so effectively lower pricing in the banking products that we serve, and much better consumer experience. And that consumer experience is a function of a culture that is obsessed about the customer, but also 
uh, the fully digitally nature of this experience. So we began with that roadmap. It's been a lot of focused execution for a decade. Our first product, which was credit card, is a hard product to scale because in credit, you cannot just grow infinitely. You cannot move fast and break things. Credit, you're taking a lot of risk as you grow right. with credit. So it requires a lot of patience, a lot of discipline building. But 70% of all the profits in financial services in Latin America come from credit. So you cannot build a large financial services business if you don't crack credit. So what you see really over the past quarter and 2022 is, is sort of the effort or, or finally the fruits of a lot of patient growth through a decade and through a lot of economic cycles. It seems like in 2022, when you saw a high inflation in the U.S. and high interest rates, this was a bit of a shock to both mm -hmm. startups as well as traditional businesses. Right. In Brazil, this was nothing. This is the history. We see this cycle every two years. You're used to it. We're yeah, completely yeah. used to it. We've seen high interest rates. We've seen high inflation, low interest rate. So we've had to grow significantly through ups and downs. We saw the worst recession in 100 years in Brazil in 2017. We had to go through mm -hmm. that. We saw presidential impeachments. We saw corruption scandals. So The macro picture we've seen as we've grown has been as bad as you can possibly wish for any startup that has grown. That's true. So in a way, we're used to it. We know how to operate in these environments. And for us, 2022 was one more cycle that we know how to deal with. And the business was already at a scale where we were continuing to growing significantly our credit business. We were already growing significantly on the cross-sell. And we continue to add a lot of new customers over on the, on the past 12 months only We brought 20 million new customers, almost all of them through word of mouth, more than all the other incumbent banks combined, getting to a very significant scale in Brazil and the other markets. Wow. Um, I think I read that Nubank is now the fifth largest financial institution in Brazil currently. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And that about 46% of the Brazilian adult population has a Nubank account. That's right. And I think that's an important metric to just highlight because that just talks to the level of impact and scale and reach that we've whether we've reached in our core market in Brazil. I don't think JP Morgan could say that about the US. I don't think JP Morgan has 46% of the American adult population. So that just tells you a bit about how relevant we've become as an institution in the market that we operate. And beyond that, we don't necessarily just want to be a simple wallet where people leave their cash. We are now becoming the primary bank account of these customers, which is our goal. We are the primary banking relationship for about 60% of our customers. We are the primary bank account. And so that is a much more solid footing to be in a much more solid strategic position than just being a wallet where you save some cash, where you use just to pay for a couple of bills. Yeah, I think it's notable because in Brazil, there was definitely, you know, this sore need for innovation that the incumbents were, you know, charging insane interest rates and fees. So there was a an appetite that people were hungry for an offering that didn't, for lack of a better phrase, rip them off. So it feels like that they embraced what Nubank had to offer. But I'm curious, did it take a little while for that adoption to happen? I mean, I, I know that there were advances in, you know, adoption of for smartphone usage, for example. So, I mean, did you see that kind of surge over the last few years with the pandemic? Sure. Yeah. So our timing was great when we launched in 2014, because that was also around the timing where smartphone penetration in Brazil was really starting to skyrocket. And you, I remember a headline from one of the big media companies calling Brazil the social media capital of the universe. Mm -hmm. And that was, that's true. Brazilians are extremely 
tech savvy. They love their smartphone. They are consistently in the top five of any social media or any digital product. And so we were able to match that demand for social products with a complete digital offering in a moment where all the other banking options were completely analog, were very offline. Mm -hmm. You needed, I personally had to wait five months to open a bank account and get a credit card when I moved to Brazil for the first time. And that was the experience that most people had to deal with when we launched a, a credit card that you could get in two minutes. So it was a product that was clearly 10x better than when everybody was serving. And given the time was correct, our adoption was very fast. Since the moment we launched, we saw significant increase for demand. We saw a demand that was viral in nature. There's nothing fundamentally viral about a credit card, if you think about it. You don't build a network. As a, it doesn't necessarily have network effects. Mm -hmm. But people were recommending their friends and family. People were going to Facebook, to Instagram, saying this is the best product I've ever used. I get it. And so we've really grown to over almost 80 million customers with effectively no marketing expense. It's been really all word of mouth, very viral in nature. But then mm -hmm. to your question, what really accelerated even more that growth trajectory was the launch of what is called PIX in Brazil which is the digital payments ecosystem. The, the government in Brazil, the central bank, instituted a new infrastructure of payments in about 2017 that enabled everybody to pay itself. And we had, as a strategic goal, become the leading payments app in the country, the equivalent of, of Venmo or, mm -hmm. or Cash App in, in Brazil. And so we took that, we executed on the goal very well. And today we are the most downloaded app to pay friends and increasingly businesses. And that payment capability brings a lot of engagement, brings a lot of activity. And through COVID, we saw an even bigger spike as people really digitalize completely their purchases of, of their day-to-day -day goods. Yeah, I've been fascinated to watch the growth of the PIX payment system in Brazil. And a lot of people are looking at that, looking at the U.S. and saying, wow, I mean, you know, typically Latin American countries might be behind when it comes to financial services technology. But in this case, it really feels like Brazil is, is ahead. PIX is widely adopted. My husband's Brazilian. I hear that people use it everywhere to pay vendors on corners for things. It's more commonly used than credit cards even. So I think that that's really a very interesting thing that has taken place in Brazil. So I'm curious then, what would you say are the biggest differences between the U.S. and LATAM markets? And actually, before we jump into that, I would like to also point out you're, you operate in Mexico and Colombia as well. That's right. So I'm also curious, are you planning to expand outside of those three countries into other parts of LATAM? Yeah, sure. So the first part of your question, what has happened effectively is a leapfrog in payments infrastructure from a situation where 10 years ago, you had a, a developed financial services market in the US with a lot of penetration of debit and credit card as the main digital payment. And then when you saw emerging markets, now, you know, highlight maybe China, India, and Brazil, which have followed a very similar trajectory, you saw a very cash heavy economies that didn't have a lot of debit or credit card penetration, and it was mostly cash. Over the past 10 years, these three countries, China, India, and Brazil, China being led by big techs in China, India and Brazil being led by government-funded systems, have leapfrogged the U.S. in digitalization using these new technologies of peer-to-peer -peer payments or peer-to-merchant payments to a point now where they are ahead of the U.S. Mm -hmm. in digitalization. You'll go to Brazil and use PIX or you go to India and use UPI, and it feels like the future. You're not really using cards anymore. You don't need cash for absolutely anything. You are paying tips to the person in the street with a QR code payment. 
So even to the level of micropayments you're using, you're using your app. I love that. Yeah, and, and that has really reduced the cost of banking services for the entire economy, but it has also brought into the formal economy hundreds of millions of people that were completely outside the system and were saving their cash under their mattress. Mm-hmm. In Brazil specifically, we brought over 20 million people that were completely unbanked into the banking economy that today are using fixed payments for all their daily needs. So that has today, uh, that has given the opportunity to these countries to see, you know, to be ahead of the U.S. In, in a lot of the payment infrastructure. If you show a check, a paper check anywhere in Brazil, people will laugh at you. They won't, <laughs> the, the, the new generation will have no idea what that is, what, what, what a right. check means. And, and you still see this very frequently in, in the U.S. So then to your question of, of uh, Mexico and Colombia, we decided to follow a strategy of wanting to or betting to be, as I said, the primary bank account of our customers. To be the primary bank of our customers and not just simply a wallet, we have to fully embrace the banking space. We cannot execute the strategy by trying to be a bank without being a bank. We need banking licenses. We need to be very local. We need integrations. We need to be fully regulated by the local central banks. That has been part of always the journey. It's annoying to be regulated, but we fully embraced it since the very beginning because mm-hmm. that has been the strategy of our, our business. That also means that it's harder to internationalize. Yeah. This is not a business that you can take to 20 countries in two years because of all the licenses that you need. Yeah, it's a, it's a process, right? It's yeah. a process. So, so because of that, we've only done three countries in 10 years. But every time we go from Brazil to Mexico to Colombia, we seek to be the leading financial institution in those markets, have the largest number of customers and and eventually very profitable and solid businesses with their own local deposits. And so because of that, we're going at a relatively slow pace in internationalization. We're very comfortable with that decision. That means that for now, I think we're fine with these two countries. But I can tell you in the next five to 10 years, we'll be in more countries. We still need to define which ones are going to be those. But there's a lot of the technology that we're building that can certainly help us take a lot of this banking experience to other economies that are also see uh, lack of access and, and, and subpar experiences. I assume Brazil is still your largest market, though. That's right. Brazil today mm-hmm. still accounts for about 75 million out of the 80 million customers that we have are in Brazil. Okay. And we launched Mexico about three and a half years ago and launched Colombia about two years ago. Uh, okay. Besides the PIX payment system, I'd like to talk more about other ways Brazil may have been ahead of the U.S. payments-wise. But first, we're going to take a quick break. I think it's really interesting what you mentioned about PICS and, and how, you know, it feels like Brazil, India, and China are actually ahead of the U.S. in this regard with when it comes to payment infrastructure. One thing, like, for example, also like Buy Now, Pay Later, which kind of exploded in the past few years in the U.S., you know, in Brazil— Paying in installments has been around forever, something that was very commonplace. So it's just just really interesting to me, like the differences between the markets, but in some ways what's old is new again, right, when it comes to certain types of things. One thing that I would like to talk about is Latin Americans have unique pain points that I feel like it's important to discuss. Can you talk a little bit about what those are and why you think Nubank is uniquely positioned to address those? Sure. So I would say... I would divide maybe the marketing two. The first one is the banked population and then the unbanked population. For the bank population, the pain historically has been prices are too high, 
experience is crappy. So you pay very high fees, very high interest rates. Generally, in, in countries in Latin America, you'll pay way higher interest rates than anything you pay in the U.S. I mean, right. we're talking about... Like hundreds of hundreds Hundreds of percent, of percent right? right, exactly, yeah, with some insane. of the products. And you pay a lot of different fees. You pay fee for a credit card, you pay fee because you're late, you'll pay fee for absolutely everything. You see a lot of these fee dynamics in the U.S. as well. So that's not that different even for the bank population. But generally on the on the banked segment is is prices are too high and experience it historically was analog, was offline since there was no competition in banking different than the U.S. where you have 4,000 banks. In Brazil, you almost had to deal with it. I remember talking to a lot of my friends at the early days, 2013, asking them, how is it possible that people are putting up with this experience, waiting five months to open a bank account and having to go to branch 10 times? And the answer for people say, well, well where else are you going to go? The bank next door is exactly the same and the other one is exactly the same. So you're trapped. So that was a big pain point, which as we launched a product that was fully digital and consumer-obsessed with a culture of consumer obsession, we were able to address that. Then you have the unbanked population where the consumer pain is much larger. When you want to access to a product and you cannot have it, then the consumer pain is, is, is much more acute. And in Latin America, about 250 million people are completely unbanked. Banks don't want to serve you or they cannot serve you even if they want to. Because when you have a branch infrastructure, when you have to serve consumers via branches, it becomes uneconomical to open an account for you if you're going to deposit $200 or $300, or if you're going to, if you need a $50 loan, the model doesn't work. So you needed to create a fully digital product with a marginal cost to serve close to zero, as we've done, to be able to serve people that will initially deposit $500 or $1,000, or sometimes people that have no credit history. And the right thing for them is to start with a very low line. So we have customers with a line that begins at $10 for the first 30 days. And after the first 30 days, it goes to $100. And then it goes to $500. And they start building their credit history that way and get access to credit. So the pain of the environment population needed a complete rethink of the business model, which is what we've done. And because of that, we're now able to address that large percentage of the population, providing them good products that meet their specific needs. I think that's one of the things that has most drawn me to fintech is the inclusion aspect of being able to bring more people into the financial system that we're not otherwise able to participate. So, you know, definitely applaud those efforts. I think also another thing when we talk about the difference between U.S. and LATAM, though, it goes beyond just the actual pain points of the consumers. We have to also talk about founder mentality, because over the past few years, I've been covering startups raising money in LATAM. There's been a, a surge of venture dollars going into the region because the, obviously, as we've talked about, there's been a lot of need. There's a lot of demand right, for innovation in this space. But I feel like when I talk to founders in Latin America, there's a different mindset. There's a different hunger. There's a different way of operating. And I feel like that's because it's so much harder to raise capital in the region that you have to really be careful about managing your cash flow more efficiently because it's not a more capital is around the corner. And you kind of have to build that resilience into your business model. And you you alluded to that earlier when you mentioned, oh, okay, we're used to market fluctuations in Latin America and Brazil in particular. We've seen a ton of volatility. So that's something that it wasn't a catastrophe to your business last year. So can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So we started in 2013 where there was effectively no venture capital in Brazil, either local or foreigner. That, that, that meant that we had to be extremely frugal since the very beginning. Capital was a huge constraint. 
And we got very lucky. We were the first investment of Sequoia in Brazil, the first investment of Founders Fund, the first investment of DST, the first investment of Tencent, the first fintech investment of Berkshire Hathaway. So we, we had to kind of open the space for a lot of our fintechs by bringing foreign capital into Latin America. And that just kind of forced that, that amount of adversity, just forced a lot of discipline, a lot of the decisions that we made with capital. We had since the very beginning a very lot of clarity around the unit economics of the business. Of course, we were not profitable the first few years, but we had to have very, very good understanding of where the business model, how the business model was going to be built, what were the different levels of the business model, what was the right rate of growth since we were growing a capital intensive product that had credit risk. We could not just simply say, grow, 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 grow as much as you can. Every additional customer that we brought in required capital deployment and had some type of funding requirement and had credit risk. So this required a multidimensional understanding of growth. We're always trying to find the right answer between the capital that we had and how much how much space we wanted to cover in this market. So I think that just created also kind of a lot of collaboration within the team. It forces us to bring a lot of different perspectives on the table. It was always a combination of newbies or or foreigners into banking, people that didn't know anything about banking, but had a lot of understanding of technology, but also people that had a lot of banking background in trying to mix those two perspectives to always arrive at the right answer for us. And then all these economic shocks that I mentioned just came almost every 12 months. It was, I remember trying to raise capital in 2015 in the middle of the Lava Jato corruption scandal in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. And people were saying, mm-hmm. this is the last place in the world where I would want to invest my money. They, I, I got this from, from several investors. And then worst recession in 100 years in 2017 and inflation in the 20s. And, and so it's like, it, it feels sometimes like that Mario Bros, uh, there is a Mario Bros uh, meme where whenever mm-hmm. you look, there was a ball of fire going after you. Mm-hmm. So I think just this just kind of builds a, a lot of resilience and discipline in the culture, always asking why and always trying to answer the questions like, what is the right type of growth and looking at it from different angles. And that has served as well consistently as as new obstacles come into play and, and things don't work out the way we think they're going to work out. Just makes us kind of continue going forward and find an answer every time that we that we hit a wall. So that's been part of our DNA since the beginning. I think some would argue that this current shift over the past year and a half or so here, like in the U.S., when it comes to funding, where it's kind of dried up to some degree and founders have had to be like, oh, wow, OK, I really need to be careful with my money is a mindset that has existed, you know, pretty much always in LATAM just that's right. because of say almost necessity, really. One thing that I neglected to mention, we were just talking about the different markets, and I think it's impressive and I would like to touch upon it. You talk about serving unbanked population, people who've never had credit. There's a lot of risk involved in that. So you mentioned starting out with very low credit lines, because I was wondering, like, do you see a lot of default? I mean, how do you underwrite, you know, a population that has never had credit before and do it responsibly and in such a way that they are able to build their credit and not default? Yeah, so this has been a really interesting insight because we've reached a bit of a counterintuitive conclusion in lending to lower income population. And the main insight is that lower income people do not have higher risk than higher income people if you give them the right credit line. So if you really start lower-income people with low credit limits and, and allow them to build a credit history, that tends to be a really good model. If you give them a way higher limit, 
that they can afford, you as an institution end up throwing them into debt. And so mm-hmm. that is what, what uh, you know, we generally talk about second order risk. It's like your decision for a product might influence the probability of default of a customer. A lot of financial institutions don't even think about that second order risk because in a way they're just trying to optimize for the next quarter or the next month. And so you, right. you throw somebody in debt, you're making a lot of money from interest financing, but then you're going to lose the customer forever because that customer is going to go into debt. So the reason why we've been able to successfully underwrite high-income customers, mid-income customers, and low-income customers is that the digital nature of our platform and the low cost to serve enables us to price risk appropriately on one end, so put the right interest rate to account for risk, but also to set the right credit limit given the income on this population, and then be very patient, be, be willing to have a customer that, that is lower income with a $100 credit limit and be willing to hear from the customer, give me a higher line, give me a higher line, give me a higher line. And I was deciding that we want to wait six months or months to make sure that we're doing the right thing for that customer ultimately. And because of that, we've just been able to grow significantly to be one of the largest credit card issuers in the country today with a default rate with losses that are 30 to 50% lower than the incumbents. In the lower income population, our credit losses are 50% less than the big banks that in theory have decades of of credit history that we don't have. So that has been a, a pretty amazing success that we've been proud of, being willing to show lower losses, even in environments like the one we're living in today, where the overall credit risk of the economy has increased. I love that strategy and I wish more institutions adopted it. So last question for you, David, what do you see ahead in digital banking? What's next? Yeah, so listen, I think the fintech opportunities is still in the early days, similarly as any other technology industries like retail or transportation or music. Technology companies will be the largest providers of financial services in the world in the next 10 to 20 years. I think the thesis hasn't really changed in a decade. We still think, though, that this opportunity is bigger in emerging markets than in developed economies, because as I said earlier, it is easier to have a product that is 10x better in emerging markets than in developed economies, given the lack of access and competition. So we already are, have reached a level of scale that allows us to be relevant in the markets that we operate, but we still have a lot of work ahead in terms of growing the market share of each individual business line that we have. We have 3% market share in personal loans. We have 1% market share in insurance, 1% in investments, 1% in crypto, about 2% in small businesses lending. So the next five years for us is going to be all about focusing in these three geographies and being able to continue growing the customer base, but in mainly grow the market share we have in every single one of these verticals. And that would put us at a very strong position in the markets that we operate a couple of years from now. Well, David, this has been so interesting. I'm very glad we finally had a chance to connect. Thank you so much for coming on the show and, and sharing all of your perspectives on digital banking overall and details of how NewBank has managed this impressive growth, especially in recent years. So thanks again. Thank you, Marianne. It has been a pleasure. Thank you very much. If you want to hear more from David and Newbank, you can find them on Twitter at Newbank, and that's N-U-B-A-N-K. And for everyone listening, let us know who we should talk to next. Fill out our listener survey at bit.ly forward slash equity pod survey. That's capital E, capital P, and capital S. And Alex and I will be back on Friday to close out the week, so we'll talk to you then. Bye. 
Equity is hosted by myself, Editor-in-Chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch Senior Reporter, Mary Ann Azevedo. We are produced by Teresa Loconsolo with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, and a big thank you to the audience development team and Henry Picavet, who manages TechCrunch Audio Products. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.